And you mentioned parallels before. So do you think we're, we're on our road to fascism? Well, I would say that in a way, fascism is not something that is ever really expelled from our capitalist economy in general. Love and light, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of El Podcast, the greatest virtual happy hour in the world. Although today, I believe it's seven in the morning, so we're drinking coffee. I am your host, Kai Primo, and I am joined by Jesse Wright. Today, our guest is Clara Matei. She is an assistant professor at the economics department of the New School for Social Research in New York City, and she has a PhD in economics from Santa Ana School for Advanced Studies in Pisa, Italy, and she is the author of the new book called The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. So thank you so much, uh, Professor Mattei, for joining us uh, on our podcast all the way from Italy. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's less early for me, so I'm wide awake. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. And uh, we'll feed off that, uh, that energy. Let's get into it. Austerity is designed to control and reduce the strength of the working class while simultaneously increasing the profits of the ruling class. So basically, we end up with an economic system that perpetually redistributes income from the working class to the upper class. Uh, is this a fair assessment, uh, you would say, of one of the major themes of your book? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So I have the capital order here with me. Uh, it came out in November with uh, University of Chicago Press. And that is definitely, I would say, one of the main thesis is that if we focus on the origins of austerity, we can really understand its purpose and function still today, which is that of structurally redistributing resources from the many to the few in order to maintain the fundamentals of our capitalist society in place, which requires the majority of us to be disciplined enough to be accepting to go sell our labor power for a very low wage and in very precarious conditions. In a previous interview, I heard that you were alluding to that both the liberal elites and fascism both accomplished the same goal, which is protecting capitalism. Can you explain this more in depth? Would you, uh, would you describe who the, the liberal elite is as well? Absolutely. So um, as a political economist, uh, I believe that history can provide enormous insight to uh, focus on how our capitalist society functions in the present moment. And my uh, the capital order is actually the historical reconstruction of how austerity was very successful in uh, reestablishing the uh, capital order uh, right after the First World War. And what I do is that I focus on two countries that, in fact, um, ha have very different um, political and institutional settings. And namely, we have the Great Britain, which is the cradle of liberalism and parliamentary democracy. And on the other hand, we have Italy under the first years of the fascist dictatorship of Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini came to power in 1922, and he is considered the first 
fascist. He is, in fact, the founder of fascism, and his dictatorship lasted 20 years um, after he was killed and defeated uh, during the Second World War. So um, what we see here is that um, this these supposedly very different ideologies and political practices um, both uh, both focus on defeating the working classes through austerity measures. So uh, it's interesting to note how um, the ruling elite in uh, Italy and Britain right after the First World War was very concerned about the possibility of different societies emerging uh, with the end of the First World War, and thus they united, both fascists and liberals, united very strongly to um, fundamentally discipline their own population. So you asked me who the uh, liberal elite was. Um, it, the book, the protagonist of my book, uh, of the Capital Order, are the... Um, the um, men, they're mostly men, actually, a very few women, I would say at the time. So the men um, basically leading the uh, main economic institutions of the time. So we have in Britain, I focus on the Bank of England and the heads of the Bank of England um, and the British Treasury and who was um, basically working within the British Treasury, especially the in-house economist Ralph Hawtrey, and these um, and other controllers of finance, these men were uh, very uh, important in advising the governments, um, who, of course, themselves were made up of uh, the elites uh, running the society. And on the case of it, in the case of Italy, I focus on, again, on economic experts who were actually working directly in the cabinet of Benito Mussolini. And it's interesting to see that Mussolini did not just bring to, uh, to his cabinet fascist, but he was collaborating with liberals. So uh, one big name of the Italian liberal elite, we could say, is Luigi Naudi, who was actually then became this, the first president of the republic when Mussolini fell. So here we really see the, const the institutional continuity after, also after the defeat of fascism, the same people who were very proud of Mussolini's capacity to implement austerity after the First World War maintained power also after his defeat. So again, kind of the, um, the participation of friendship of the ruling classes when it comes to defending the capital order. They have no problem uh, in their alliance with, um, you know, very harsh um, authoritarian governments such as the fascist one. Could you give examples of the kind of austere measures that were uh, placed at the time, just so we can kind of go back in that history Yes, this is important because um, there is the word austerity is uh, often uh, hidden in 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 public uh, policy debate. Uh, it's often not used or often I think misused because it's usually just understood as being about cuts in the budget in general. Um, in, in the story of the capital order, I talk about austerity as a trinity, as made up of uh, a plurality of policies that really reinforce one another. So we have fiscal austerity, which is all about cutting social expenditures, so cutting benefits for the people. 
um, unemployment benefits, money that goes to school, to healthcare, um, housing, and so forth. And then taxing the people instead of the wealthy. So the abolition of corporate taxes, the abolition of profit duties, and the increase in consumption taxes. Something that was, uh, for the first time after the First World War, they actually started taxing the working classes, which until that moment were not taxed. So the increase of the pool of who's being taxed and going to tax people who are are poor and, and were not taxed before uh, in favor of taxing less uh, the wealthy. So this is fiscal austerity, um, which of course imposes the motto, consume less, produce more, which is kind of the, the late motif of austerity. Um, then we have monetary austerity, which is again something that we clearly see today in the increases in interest rates that have been going on now for months. Uh, that the Fed and other central banks around the world are imposing. And um, which, again, what happens when you increase the interest rates? Well, you are basically uh, putting cash and uh, increasing the wealth in the hands of the savers uh, and the creditors, so financial institutions, to the detriment of the people. Why? Well, because A, it becomes more difficult to um, live off of credit something that we know the American population, for example, and, and other, uh, mostly, most countries now workers are reduced to living off credit because of their low wages. But then uh, high interest rates also have the effect of creating an economic downturn. We're seeing it right now, right? They're all ex experts expect it. And that's kind of the purpose is to increase the unemployment rate so that the uh, labor market turns uh, against the workers in the sense that they're, they will lose bargaining power once the unemployment rate goes up. And this is exactly what happened in Britain in the 1920s. There was a moment in which the wage share, so the amount of GDP that went to wages was very high because there was very low unemployment and there was general worker militancy. And so a lot of unionization, unions soared in terms of participants. And this was all, though, very quickly uh, defeated by austerity, which actually, with the Treasury and the Bank of England increasing interest rates and diminishing social expenditures, the result was a downturn, which fundamentally killed the bargaining power of the workers. Um, so again, I think what we see here is that there is a profound rationale and rationality to current policies also is that this uh, infliction of a downturn has a specific effect of telling people they should just accept their conditions as low paid wage workers. And this is not something that isn't important because we are in a moment in history still today in which a lot of people have basically are rebelling against their condition as wage workers. There's a lot of anti-work movement uh, in, in the United States and everywhere, everywhere else around the globe. We had the, the great resignation phenomenon, people just not wanting to go back to work because the conditions were so bad. And now with increasing interest rates and the return of unemployment, people will be forced to basically accept their market dependence 
uh, because of the increase in their precariousness. So this is a, the second part of austerity. We talked about fiscal of monetary, and then there's industrial austerity, which is a direct attack to uh, the workers and industrial relations. So it comes in the forms of wage repression. Privatization is a very big one. Again, if you privatize, what happens is that workers um, lose a lot of their entitlements uh, to um, better paid public jobs. And so what happens is that, the, as economists put it, their reservation wage decreases. So they are, uh, again, forced to accept lower wages and more precarious conditions. And then, of course, job deregulation is a big one. No labor deregulation, the fact that labor becomes always more flexible. No one's unionized anymore uh, because of the battle against the unions. And so this trinity, fiscal, monetary, industrial, all really helps the purpose of securing the foundation of the, our capitalist economy because it increases the expectations for profits uh, to the detriment of the um, the resources for the many uh, because of wages going down and people becoming more unemployed and fundamentally people having thus no alternative but to accept their conditions. And this is, I think, important uh, to see today, but it is even more explicit if we look at what happened 100 years ago, because 100 years ago, 1919-1920 were years in which the majority of um, people in Britain and Italy and elsewhere, also in Europe, were really demanding a different society. Uh, the, the capital order, my book, reconstructs a variety of practices that were put into action after the First World War that were meant to substitute capitalism as the way we understand the organization and product of production and distribution of resources of our societies. So in a moment in which, in fact, the alternatives were concrete, were happening, uh, were widespread, it is in this moment that austerity was born in order to react and reimpose the capital order and the uh, fundamentally the sacrifice of the majority of citizens. What? How would you define the working class and kind of like this capitalistic class? Like, is it less than 1% would be considered the capitalist and 99% is the working class or would a doctor you know, professors, Google engineers, are they in the working class? Or are they in the, the ruling class in this, in this case? Right. So thanks. This is an important question. Um, so in general, um, when we talk about working classes, um, it's not about the income in, in a, in a framework of, um, say Marx and political economy, it's not really about the income, but it's a, you make, but it's about the po position you have in the relations of production. So let me try to explain. Um, I can be, um, someone working for Google and making a lot of money, but, um, this, if I'm an employee, I'm still in fact part of the working classes in terms of where do I get my income from? So I get my income, not from capital, uh, but from my wage. So this is what really matters. It's not the amount of money you make, but the fact that you make your money from wages, from working, from selling your labor time in return for a wage 
rather than from interest on capital. So this is an important uh, factor in establishing who is workers. And uh, the other, of course, obvious result of being a worker is that you really are not fully in control of the output of your labor and not even of the activity of your labor. But that's kind of controlled by those who own the means of production and uh, in a way uh, decide on the uh, production process. So I would say that it was much more clear cut at the time in the sense that um, workers were industrial workers and agricultural workers primarily, but also public employees, uh, of course, are wage workers. On the other hand, we had the ruling elite, which yes, in Italy was definitely, and in Britain at the time were definitely the 1% who were those who detained uh, capital and thus lived off of rent or interest on their capital. I'm not sure about specifically in Europe, but like in the US, what about the professional like managerial class? Where would that fit in? Like Anthony Fauci wouldn't be considered a ruling elite, for example, but he, you know, because he's not a capitalist, he's a bureaucratic for the government, but he obviously has more control than a lot of the the capitalists. So like, how does the, the professional managerial class fit in in this whole? I'm just trying to like understand. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, mean, I read sure. the book. Yeah. Okay. Go. Sorry. Um, so th uh, this is uh, this is important. Uh, so I think the point is that um, class analysis is very important, but it's not you know uh, it's not a rigid um, categorization, right? So the point is that uh, it's important to um, to um, also understand the nuances, especially of today, of how heterogeneous our society is. And in fact, that the fact that, of course, even humble workers uh, in many corporations now are made to actually own some forms of shares of the corporation is clearly done in a way also to um, confuse um, your class belonging and make you even more invested in uh the, the profit and the success of, of, of the business in which you're fundamentally exploited, but at the same time, there is an illusion that you participate in the profits, right? So the managerial class is a, is a tricky one, and there's different um, interpretations according to who you ask, who actually works on class analysis. But what is certain is that they kind of represent a um, almost a... Um, it's a peculiar situation by which they usually are um, in control of the production process, but they don't own the whole, uh, the means of production necessarily, right? So CEOs, they are in fact employees in a way because they're not, they own a share, but they don't, of course, own the the whole of, of, of the, or not even a part of the, uh, of their, um, the corporation they work for, but they are in control of the production process, right? So that's something that uh, back in the day, you know, in the, the book I describe, uh, someone like um, Agnelli, who was running Fiat, the Fiat factory, was at once detaining the majority of the capital of its uh, its industry, but also um, but also managing, having a great say in the management of of, of Fiat. Of its of his industry, right? So uh, this type of you know classic understanding of who is the industrialist has changed 
in, in the evolution of capitalism. So now there's a greater division of labor. So usually the owners of capital are not at all involved in how uh, a corporation is run. And that's left to um, CEOs or other ma managerial classes. And, and of course, so there, um, this managerial class is is um, is not owning the whole of capital, but definitely has a say in how capital is managed and invested. So definitely, I would say that um, th they're not uh, workers in the classic sense of being exploited, not having a say in 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 how uh, the uh, production process is run. So um, clearly, they side uh, in if in in the class war that we see today. They definitely side in favor of, of the ruling elite and they participate in the ruling elite also because their the income they make out of their wages is enormous, right? So they have nothing, they live in a world that is completely separate uh, from the world of the majority of us who lives paycheck by paycheck and have a hard time going at, arriving at the end of the month. Yeah, towards the end of your book, uh, you say, quote, it occurred to me that the parallels between Mussolini's time and our own while striking were unexplored. Uh, what are these parallels between fascist Italy in the 1920s to say Europe today or the US today, Canada today? What did you mean by that sentence? Thanks. Um, well, uh, a variety. Uh, and the first parallel is of course, uh, the imposition of austerity as the only uh, necessary way forward to fix the economy. And um, so that is definitely the case is that the type of policies that Mussolini was so applauded for in the 1920s, uh, and especially applauded for uh, by the, uh, you know, the, the financial uh, establishment in the United States, in England, and all of the liberal elites, well, these were exactly the same. So privatization, layoffs of public employees, wage repression. So actually, of course, Mussolini could do it directly by decree, something that is a bit trickier today. Um, deflation, so increases in the interest rates and um, attacks fundamentally on unions, which is, of course, something that we definitely see in the United States and elsewhere today. So... Definitely the parallel of the type of economic policies that were considered orthodox and correct in that historical moment are exactly what, in a way, we are, we have seen in the United States for the past, I would say, at least 50 years. I would argue even more. But uh, definitely we have a resurgence of austerity in the immediate present um, with, of course, we know Republicans uh, and also saying that now we have to start cutting again Medicaid and Medicare, and uh, this is going uh, with um, all the increases in the interest rates we're seeing. So this is the first parallel. The second parallel, I would say, is importantly the type of theory that justifies austerity. So uh, in the capital order, I describe austerity not just merely as policy, but as policy that is backed by very powerful economic theory that justifies austerity as the rational, efficient way forward. And so um, this type of theory is still alive and well today. In fact, Mussolini's advisors were the first proponents 
of the so-called neoclassical framework that dominates um, the the economic circles and what economic textbooks still at the present time. So the type of economic theory students learn at school and um, economic advisors use uh, uh, when they advise their the governments is exactly uh, the uh, evolution uh, of the same foundations that was act born um, at the end of the 1900s, early 20th century, which are the years in which Mussolini um, basically came to power. So that is very important because we're talking about theory that presents itself as deeply apolitical, as something that is purely technical, above class bias, and ultimately something neutral that does the good of the whole so that the citizens should just trust and not worry about because you should just leave it to the experts because the expert know uh, and the rest are ignorant. Well, this understanding of keeping economic science protected from the majority is something that really emerged strongly uh, during Mussolini's time and is still very obvious today. Um, we have internalized the idea that we should just leave economic decisions to the experts. But what you really see if you dig deep is that these theories are not neutral at all and are actually quite classist in their very models. So these very models presuppose that workers are just lazy um, um, basically, not only they're lazy, uh, but they're also secondary to the production process because who really is in charge is the saver investor. And it's the individual who is virtuous enough to save. And that's ultimately what economic policies should do at the level of public policy is to reward the saver investor. Thus, austerity policies make a lot of sense because it is all about shifting resources away from these lazy, useless workers to the saver investors who are those who then are capable of running the economy and are nice enough to employ the rest of the less virtuous uh people in society. So these type of uh, assumptions that are imbued in the economic models in Mussolini's time are exactly the same that we see today. And then if I can think about another parallel is something that I already said is basically the fact that when it comes to um, eliminating any threat to radical social change, well, then there you really see the alliance of all the members of the ruling elites, uh, notwithstanding their supposed ideological inclinations. So this is something, of course, that we've seen throughout history. In Latin America is a very good case. The fact that um, liberal economists and bureaucrats had no problem siding with the worst worse authoritarian governments when it came to imposing austerity, right? The, obvious case that comes to mind is the case of Pinochet in Chile, uh, but there's many others in which um, the supposed authority of the economic experts was really used to justify 
very classist economic policies that reduce the majority into poverty and desperation and not just economic violence, but also clear political violence, right? Like in the case of Mussolini, also in the case of Pinochet, you had, you were able to really discipline the population and impose austerity because you had the strong hand of the state torturing, jailing, and eliminating any political opposition. So let's say that austerity as the cure, the economic cure required the elimination of opposition in order to really succeed in countries like Italy in the 1920s, which was a country where the worker council movement had taken over for at least two years, 1919, 1920. They are the years in which Antonio Gramsci and the whole movement of Lordine Nuovo was very successful in um, running these workers' councils as alternatives to capitalism. And in, in the case of Pinochet, we know, for example, that Allende had actually won the elections proposing a radical reform of, for example, of the ownership of land and of ownership of and the fact that he wanted to actually kick out all of the major foreign investors who had privatized the Chilean economy until that moment. And in these moments in which there's clearly a possibility of a break from the status quo, uh, then it is a moment in which liberals are very happy to side with fascist rulers because they know it is the only way to actually impose their preferred economic order, which is an economic order in which the majority constantly benefits and the minority constantly loses. We are now in a historical moment in which the inequalities have never been so, so high. And so uh, I think uh, the consensus that is built for our economic system is really falling, um, especially with the younger generation. No one believes anymore that capitalism is able to deliver prosperity for all uh, or a good life for all. And the climate disaster is another clear indication of how our economic system has failed um, in terms of giving uh, welfare to the majority. Capitalism has definitely failed in providing welfare to the majority, but has not really failed in its fundamental motive. Because in fact, if we look at what capitalism as a socioeconomic system is all about, it's never about providing well-being to the majority, but it's all about having the possibility of accumulating capital. So really about maintaining the expectations for profits high. So in this sense, capitalism is not a system that allows for the majority to do well. And I think historically now it's a moment in which this revelation is becoming clearer to the majority. The ideological narrative by which capitalism is a system that provides to the many is obviously breaking apart um, uh, because of the fact that it's so clear that we are in a society in which war, climate disaster and structural inequality are plaguing our world. So it's in this moment more than ever that also right now we see the need to enforce austerity. Austerity is fundamental in moments in which the majority is realizing that this system is not the best and possible and only possible world. 
And so it is in this moments that experts are more convinced than ever in enforcing austerity, because if you enforce austerity, all types of rebellion against the system, even more spontaneous rebellions, will fall because austerity will increase the precariousness of people and thus force people to fall back in the line and accept the type of world as the only one possible. I have a, I have a quick question, follow-up question on that. The, as far as the, the behavioral response of the working class when uh, in, the, in the 20s, are you seeing some similar behavioral response to today from uh, from the 20s, for instance, like you mentioned, the you know the working class are are quitting uh, and uh, they want to do their own thing instead of of work for the man. Quote, i.e., uh, are you seeing some of the same behavior repeating itself? So yes, so this is why I think uh, the Capital Order as a book is quite timely for us today. Is that you really see austerity functioning as a reaction? to a potential disorder in our society. So in 1919, 1920, the years immediately following the Great War, uh, the Capital Order explores how the Great War had triggered uh, a variety of organizational processes, and especially of social demands from the people. Uh, and this came in the forms uh, of demands for fundamentally for economic democracy. So demands for um, self-management of industry. So that was very big is that unions were growing in those years, uh, 1919, 1920. Workers were not just unionizing, but also were demanding a different role for unions and especially different roles for workers in the sense that they want people, workers were demanding a direct say in how production was taking place. Um, so we had so many different ways of going about understanding this from workers' councils in Italy to the Guild Socialist Movement in Britain, in which workers were getting together in these guilds and directly taking on, for example, construction, um, the construction business and contracts. Um, two understandings of nationalization of big industries like the coal uh, industry in Britain. Right now, I think um, we are seeing forms of rebellion that, of course, are different. Uh, history uh, never repeats itself and capitalism evolves. So um, what we're seeing today is the result of, I argue in my book, almost 100 years of austerity. So, of course, workers have been structurally disempowered. So unions are much weaker and um, people have uh, even lower wages in proportion, lower real wages in proportion. But what you see clearly is that um, there is there are forms of rebellion from less to more spontaneous. So in the United States, we're seeing a large amount of new unions emerging, right? While the old unions more tied to the manufacturing sector uh, have withered away, there are all these unions emerging in the uh, in the service sector, Amazon, Starbucks. There's a lot of unionization of of a type that is novel. Um, but you're also seeing a surge in strikes, 
Um, so there are many, many strikes that are going on, especially these strikes are clearly fomented and increased by this inflationary spiral. So this is, again, something very similar to what happened 100 years ago, is that inflation um, inspires people to react uh, because inflation really shows how the system is not really delivering on its promise of uh, shared welfare and people are losing uh, purchasing power. So we are seeing in the United States right now, there's plenty of strikes. No one speaks about it, but I always mention this um, this um, labor action tracker of Cornell University, in which you can really see that there's hundreds of strikes going on. Uh, in the university also, university employees, including my colleague at the New School, have been striking in the last month. And um, and another thing that you're seeing is more spontaneous quitting of jobs. And that's something I think that is uh, something that is peculiar to our time because people are less organized um, collectively and so have forms of spontaneous rebellion by just deciding not to go to work and um, saying, hey, I think we could try to make a living uh, in a different way. So it's in these moments in which the capital order is really crumbling. It's crumbling because, I mean, in 1919, 1920, it was a crumbling that was much more powerful in the sense that there was also Russian revolution going on and workers, in fact, were stronger. But right now also, if it's not crumbling, the capital order is definitely put, being put into question. And that's why austerity um, is uh, is uh, coming back with a vengeance. It's it, because it's time to silence people and to um, get them to um, to just bow down once more. So you know we've had the pandemic, and you know we've just had you know then there's the wars that we fought and all the spending happening, and that they had a. Uh, everybody had to get a stimulus at the time. And so, um, you know, the, the picture that we see is that there was so much spending, so much money printing that is leading to inflation. And that the only way to kind of trim down the inflate or, or, you know, slow down the inflation rate is by increasing these interest rates and it's work time and time again. C can you respond to that? That's the picture they paint. So then, you know, for us, we're thinking about, okay, well, it's, it's coming because we've spent so much money. So the entire nation has to have these uh, austerity measures in place. Um, can you respond? Thanks. Yes. Thoughts? So um, two points on this important issue you raise. One is that the stimulus checks for uh, the common working uh, people in the United States and elsewhere has, I think, triggered this questioning of the fundamental order of capitalism by which we are forced uh, to sell our labor in return for a wage in the sense that people got some money from the state. It was not a lot of money. It was very little money, but it was enough money um, to kind of conceptually have people realize that our society is a political choice. There's nothing necessary to it. So the state decides explicitly to take on roles and not others because the state in, under capitalism functions as the, funda the fundamental safeguard to 
the market economy. So in a moment in which the state that actually is giving money to people directly without having these people have to go work for a wage, this clearly breaches the natural order of things and has as the result, the fact that people start saying, Hey, you guess what? Maybe this is not the only way we can organize our society and we want to break out of it. So this is important is that I think a lot of the, and, and, you know, this is also what economic experts are saying is like, they're actually blaming the stimulus check for the fact that there is such a labor shortage at the moment. And there's such there's such a tight labor market because there is just less labor supply, less people willing to go work for a wage. So that is the first important point is that this stimulus checks had a, had the political effect of increasing the political imagination of the common people. And many have realized that they want to opt out. They're just not going to be game in a situation which the rate of exploitation is so, so high and you go work for such miserable uh, amounts of, of money, right? So this is the first thing, is the fact that uh, state intervention is not neutral politically because it can trigger these uh, effects that are very problematic for those who want to maintain the capital order. Um, so the second point is that, of course, the narrative is that uh, in order to defeat inflation, um, the only way to do it is by increasing the interest rates. Um, so this, of course, is part and parcel of, of the austerity logic that if uh, if one has the chance to read my book, you really realize how this, of course, is one understanding of inflation, first of all. Um, the fact that inflation is actually the result, not just of more money being printed by the state, but also of greater purchasing power from the part of the people, okay? So basically, we need to curb this purchasing power. Um, but the other point is that it gives us a sense that this is the only way to curb inflation, right? Because it gives us a sense that there's no other policy solution but to increase the interest rates. Now, this is part of the austerity rhetoric is to say there is no alternative. This is the only way you can do it. Now, if you actually look at history, you see that there are other ways in which we could be dealing with inflation at, at the moment. Uh, but these other ways to deal with inflation that could be, for example, about putting caps on prices, especially on, on prices of goods that are more fundamental for the survival of the people, or directly uh, imagining controlling production in ways that uh, you're less dependent on money per se. These forms of solution to inflation are solutions that presuppose some form of fundamental questioning of free market capitalism. They require more planning from the part of the people or the political institutions. So clearly these solutions are no goers for those who want to maintain the status quo. Um, so that's why they prefer to depict austerity as the only way to curb inflation because any other way in which you could actually tackle inflation and, you know, 
I mean, price caps were something that even the United States did, uh, not only during the First World War, but especially during the Second World War. Uh, so it's not even something that necessarily would require the fall down as, of capitalism as such, but it would definitely require a greater realization of how political even price stability is, right? How, how it is, again, about political decisions. So I think here it's very important. It's to realize how anything else from austerity would mean rethinking some more fundamental elements of how we organize our economy that the ruling classes and especially the experts are not willing to do at the moment because it's much easier to impose deflation because deflation will ultimately get to what the main objective is, which is to tame any form of rebellion from the people because deflation is much more efficient in increasing the unemployment rate and thus ensuring that we are all in a way again trapped into this capitalist society. All other forms of alternatives would be alternatives that would require a fundamental rethinking of our economic organization and it's not something that goes to the benefit of those who are gaining from this economic system, who happen to be those who are actually in the highest position, not only in the state, but also in all the financial institutions that rule our economy, especially central banks. Do you, like your critique is on, on capitalism, but I would say like in the United States, I mean, we don't have capitalism. We'd have, you know, crony capitalism. I mean, you have the, you know, these uh, private public partnerships, you have special interest groups, you have politicians, whether they're Republican or Democrats that get into politics so then they can get that job to springboard them to a, a private sector job and make a bunch of money. I mean, like in the state of California, I mean, they spend more money on homelessness than they do on the K to 12. You know, they spend more per homeless person than they do per student in the K to 12 system. Yet the homeless problem has gotten worse because you have all these developers and and other you know NGOs that are just pilfering the money. You have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and all these nonprofits that don't pay taxes, so they're not actually paying taxes to the, the infrastructure in the United States. But then they're able to you know throw their money around and and control things that way. So like I don't I think that the you know, people feel like the system is rigged against them because they don't actually have capitalism. They're, we haven't had capitalism in decades in the U.S. And I mean, I when I was reading this book, I wasn't sure, like, is this attack on our current form of capitalism? Is all form of capitalism bad? And then if capitalism is bad, I mean, what is the what is the the solution that, you know, where people can actually big, you know, based on on a meritocracy? I mean, I think right now with, you know, like especially in the United States where you have you know, kind of like this, um, you know, victim mentality where people are getting into college, not based on merit, but based on what race they're in or what ethnic group they're in. And like, we're, I feel like that's a regression. That's not capitalism anyways. So, um, I feel like that our whole capitalistic society has been gone for 50 years in the United States. Thanks. So, um, you point to a very important point, Jesse, which is what, um, usually, um, so, 
there's many different interpretations of what capitalism is, and I can give you mine. But what you're pointing to a point that was made very clearly by very important political economists, such as Ellen Minskin Wood, which is uh, who followed the idea of Robert Brenner and others, um, which is about how capitalism differs from different socioeconomic systems such as feudalism or slave societies because it's based on market coercion rather than political coercion. It's based on a form of coercion that is more impersonal because it's supposedly mostly about these laws of the market that force us for example, to go work for a wage, right? So let me explain uh, in, a, in a better way. While uh, during uh, the feudal times, um, the serf worked on the land of the, lo the Lord and was forced into giving part of what the serf, of what he or she produced because there was a concrete political threat, right? If the serf did not work X amount of hours for the Lord or provide X amount of output in the form of agricultural output to the Lord, then the Lord could wield feudal law against the serf and enforce it even violently through um, his troops or his uh his uh police so while in those days uh exploitation happened because of political coercion right think about slave society you are politically coerced uh by the the, the slave owner because the slave owner actually owns you right so there is there is an explicit class relation and an explicit subordination of uh, the exploited uh, by the exploiter. In the case of capitalism, what changes is that, in fact, uh, when you sign a contract for McDonald's or for J.P. Morgan Chase, no one is forcing you. No one is going to come. The state authority is not going to come knock on your door and tell you, listen, if you don't go to work, I'm going to fine you or put you into jail, right? It's actually something that you willingly do, quote unquote, because you have actually no other alternative to make a living, right? So while the serf under in the situation of uh, the feudal times could run away, physically run away from um, the Lord, and uh, this is something that actually was one of the reasons why uh, feudalism actually fell as an economic system is because actually there was a big problem of masses of people escaping uh, their, their, their exploiters. This is not something you can really do under capitalism because uh, in a moment in which we all become market dependent, and this is true both for workers and for uh, the capitalists, the capitalists also depend on the market because they need to sell their goods in order to actually make a profit, right? Uh, in the moment in which market dependence is widespread, then it's not political coercion in a way. It's not explicitly political coercion. It becomes a form of impersonal economic coercion.
So, of course, this is uh, real, uh, yet this doesn't mean that this not, is not a political choice because, of course, our we the institutions that make our society are institutions that we have built. So, of course, it's intrinsically political, but it's not immediately political in the sense that we feel like it's natural to go work for a wage because that's the only alternative we have to make a living, right? So this is very important, and this is a typical characteristic of modern capitalism. Now, capitalism evolves, and it is the case that many people think about the current form of capitalism in the United States today as a capitalism is that is not as pure as it was uh, perhaps a, a century ago because there is much more political involvement of the state in order to extract resources um, or in a way wield resources in favor of the few um, without having to um, rely too much on the fundamental exploitation that happens at the level of the market forces, right? So there's extraction is happening in a way that is not anymore reliant on the fact that we are market dependents and thus we have to go work, but the state directly shifts resources that have already been produced. So we are in a situation in which the alliance between the state and the market, or at least those who uh, rule the economic processes, is much tighter to the point that um, there is unconventional political intervention that used to not happen. So this is definitely the case. That's why someone like Robert Brenner now likes to talk of the return to kind of feudal society, right? the fact that um, capitalism was all about producing new value through the production process. Um, and now, in a way, we have even forgone, in many cases in the United States, the idea of producing new value. It's all about shifting value that is already being created, uh, has already been created to the few. Um, through a big role of the state. So this is definitely the case um, that uh, this idea of pure market dependence and impersonal laws of the market is, um, is something that with this current evolution of capitalism is being lost somehow. And to the point that we can even wonder whether the foundational characteristic of capitalism still holds and thus whether we are in fact altogether under capitalism. But what I would say is definitely that for now, even if of course capitalism evolves and changes, and so we would need to go into the specificities, what is certainly the case is that the two pillars of capitalism, which are private property of the means of production and wage relations still hold. So I would argue that we're definitely indeed still under capitalism because production runs via private business, of course, with a lot of financing from the part of the state. But, you know, the intervention of the state has always been the case, also in forms of more laissez-faire, pure capitalism. The state has always been important to secure the market, right? There cannot be any capitalism without the role of the state. Uh, so state and markets have are born together, in the modern world and go hand in hand. But 
production is still run primarily privately, especially with the fact that we have uh, undertaken large scale privatization and privatization is still a reality going on today. And then the other fact is that the majority of us are still wage workers. So these fundamental pillars, I think, uh, speak in favor of the fact that while uh, we are seeing complexification of what capitalism means today and clearly forms of even feudal extraction, if you will, we are fundamentally still in a capitalist economy. Yeah, the, going back to the title of your book, The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. Do you think that we are then on our way to fascism right now? Is that kind of what you're alluding to? I mean, you know, talking about you know, kind of the leading up to fascism in the in the book, you know, where you have you specifically focus on the period between the First World War and the Great Depression. I mean, do you see par and you mentioned parallels before? So do you think we're, we're on our road to fascism? Well, I would say that um, in a way, uh, fascism is not something that is ever really expelled from our capitalist economy in general. So I think what the provocative message of the capital order is that this clear-cut divide between capitalist democracies and fascism under capitalism is something that needs to be blurred much more. And in fact, that um, there are practices under supposed liberal capitalism, such as in the United States, that um, resemble uh, just maybe in a more hypocritical way what what, what goes on and went on in um cases of explicit fascist regimes. So um, I don't know if we're on our road to, fa you know, uh, what that that actually means in the sense that I think if, if we look at what fascism meant in Italy for the 20 years of rule of Benito Mussolini, what we see is that the fundamental feature of that regime was the suppression of the working classes and was um, the suppression of wages in favor of profits. And I would, see that the, I would say that this is definitely a trait that is common in other liberal democracies as well. If we see, of course, under fascism, a political opposition um, was explicitly um, rejected and people were explicitly jailed and, um, and newspapers were closed. But if we think about what happens today in the United States, it is the case that, you know, um, are there possibility of actually being critical when you start becoming dangerous? Um, there are so many different ways in which you can, you know, silence uh, critics um, that are just more subtle because now they work also through technological apparatuses, right? So the algorithms, the, the whole way in which there's censorship that is less explicit, but is even stronger, I would say, um, has us, I think, really yeah, we're, think... I mean, we're experiencing censorship. We've, we've experienced censorship. I feel of like it, it exists today, but it comes from, it's coming more from the far left than it is from you know, the, the conservative and I can see where the austere measures are. I can, I can just see, it just seems like a, a crazy loop <laughs> because the, from, from the far left, they seem to be controlling the narrative, uh, uh, 
and then they can censor content. Oh, absolutely. You know, censor, censorship. Yeah. yeah. The mainstream, uh, the mainstream has a line and we've seen it also with the whole story of the vaccines and on all the co the, the management of the pandemic, there's been enormous censorship and censorship is, you know, the mainstream is also the liberal mainstream. Um, and so I would say that uh, it's definitely uh, not, not uh, one way. The point is that it's, any narrative that I think goes against the interest of the capital order today is marginalized and censored in ways that are possibly just less obvious than what happened under Mussolini's fascism. Uh, I mean, you know, so it's all relative. Uh, okay, Mussolini was torturing political opponents. But if we think about what hap is happening in Guantanamo still today, uh, we are torturing uh, supposed political opponents in the United States. So, you know... Um, and we we are uh, killing thousands of people because uh, of uh, our border uh, rules, uh, and you know, in a way, it's all I think um, just more complex and less explicit now. But I would say that a lot of fascist practices, including censorship of any critical opinion, uh, is something that um, is really characteristic of this United States society in this moment. So the point of the book is to say capitalism still today really only protects itself through forms of authoritarianism. And these forms of authoritarianism, they can vary. We we don't want to misuse the word fascism too much. I talk about fascism in the, its historical case under Mussolini, but these authoritarian practices that uh, Mussolini experimented with were not only praised already in the 20s by the whole liberal establishment in the United States and in, in Britain, uh, but were also, were also, I think, and are still today practiced just in more nuanced ways and through the use of technological um, technological means at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think you said, I think COVID opened up a whole Pandora's box. I mean, like you said, I mean, I think a lot of these people that had jobs all of a sudden after they didn't work their job, they realized their job had no meaning. I mean, there's... Uh, the famous book, you know, is a bullshit jobs, whatever. What does he say? I think 75% of jobs are BS jobs. But then you had these doctors that were basically being fired if they were treating patients, which is, you know, of course, not censoring them at the highest level where you take away their medical license for just trying to to actually not let patients die. Um, you know, your book doesn't focus on solutions because, you know, you focused on the history of this of this period. You know, what are solutions to to actually change this around to kind of give people, you know, kind of the power back. I mean, people, you have all these young people talking about web three and crypto. And I think, you know, the FTX, we've clearly, clearly seen that crypto, I don't think is the answer that they were just part of the problem, yeah. but you know, how do we get reverse the road? If you know, if we, right. I think we are on the road to fascism and how do we reverse this? Right. We are on the road to fascism or we've never really left fascism in some form or, or another, if we want to like, uh, try to think how uh, critically about how authoritarian our economic and political system is today. Um, um, yes, so that's the thing. I think the key is finding ways to emancipate ourselves from this market dependence, which is actually exactly what austerity um, ha 
is meant to do is increase our market dependence so that it can actually discipline us uh, by uh, giving us no other option. But uh, yet I think that's the key is like finding, uh, finding, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Original uh, and creative ways to emancipate ourselves from market dependence. Now, what does that look like? Well, you know, I think the first part of the capital order really tries to give some concrete insights to see how what went on then could be somehow useful um, to um, give inspiration for current practices. So even the idea of councils running production um, collectively in a democratic way through small, small councils um, that in a way the, then could be the nucleus of a different political reality, right? The idea that these councils are both trying to be economically democratic by uh, running production distribution collectively, but then these councils are also uh, these new political institutions that could potentially um, spread as federations in new novel understanding of states that are not capitalist states and that subordinated to uh, capitalist markets. So I think that's that's the key is, is it possible to actually find ways to really build the material conditions of our society that can escape market dependence and escape fundamentally production for profit and with an understanding that you're producing for use and in, in, in forms that not necessarily rely on needing to sell goods on this market, right? Uh, the cryptocurrency was still dependent on uh, these, uh, these markets. So how do you do this? Well, I think historically we have to keep in mind that capitalism is only around 300 years old and that societies before and potential societies after could think of different ways that are way, understandings of societies that are really able to abolish class divides uh, by abolishing exploitation, by, as Gramsci put it, um, all being collectively producers. Uh, if we're all producers, this means that we could all collaborate um, equally. Of course, it doesn't mean that you division of labor is something useful, but it would mean that there would be no one really controlling from above in a non-democratic way. Um, it, it, these seem like very abstract ideas, but actually I think if you look at historically the cases I described in the capital order, you see that there were concrete realities and they're not that more complex than running a society on a market that is fundamentally anarchic. Uh, planning is something that is a taboo word uh, in the United States. And of course we associate it with authoritarian forms of states like the Soviet Union, but planning itself doesn't mean necessarily associating it with vertical authoritarian institutions because it could be democratic planning. And ultimately, Planning is uh, the first way to actually politically organize production. And this is what happens also at the level of the firm. Today, we have the anarchy of the market, but each firm actually plans internally, right? That's the big contradictions in under capitalism is that planning is actually much more diffused than the ideologues of capitalism will, will have us think because actually each 
firm, each business is a microcosm of planning, very hierarchical, not democratic, of course, but there is planning there. And then there's this anarchic market in which we're not planning at all what is being produced at a level of the general society, but everyone tries to compete to sell commodities that they think are going to be more profitable as a business, right? So if we live in New York, instead of having a council of citizens getting together and saying, hey, we need uh, this amount of bananas uh, for uh, New Yorkers, this amount of sweaters for New Yorkers for this year. This is like the material basic needs we need to satisfy in order to get all New Yorkers to have their basic needs met, right? And this could be done, in fact, through a collective plan of citizens. And thus you go and produce these goods. And in this way, you wouldn't even have to sell these goods. You, would even, you could emancipate yourself from the mediation of money. Uh, this is exactly not what happens. What happens is that um, businesses in New York Everyone can produce bananas, right? Anyone can import bananas fundamentally. And then you, you compete through cheaper prices, right? Competition, real competition in capitalism happens because whoever is able to sell cheaper ultimately beats its competitors and the competitors die. So this anarchism of the market is actually much more complex and twisted in the, um, in the, uh, the what economists call externalities they cause in the sense that of all the social devastating effects it implies because of course if uh it's more uh profitable to make trash bags uh, plastic trash bags instead of bananas people will start making trash bags that's how capital moves and moves where it's more profitable to produce and of course without any interest in if you're producing goods that are actually useful for people healthy for people if it's goods that are actually sustainable ecologically, that does not matter for capitalism because it's not in the DNA of how the system works. Rather, if we thought about planning at a level of society to defeat this anarchy of the market, then we could really imagine emancipating ourselves from market dependence. And I, again, I don't think this would be more complex than the complexity and the absurdity of a system right now that runs through the private accumulation of profit in a moment in which overproduction and all forms of issues are causing the fact that there's very little people who actually want to still invest in the real economy because of uh, how difficult it is to actually beat the competitors, especially if competitors become these huge uh, corporate giants that have squashed everyone else. So I don't know if I uh, if I made any sense, but what I want to say is that I think that from the capital order from my book, we get some concrete examples of how we, you can run production democratically. And they were real in the 19, 19, before they were defeated by austerity. There are other examples around the world today of councils being real initiatives, like in, in Chile, the council movement in Chile is pretty big. So these alternatives do exist. They're just hidden by the mainstream media. And they are, I think, less abstract and less complex than one would think, especially because we are not in a society that is easy in its organization right now. And it's a, it's a form of organization right now that is clearly extremely contradictory 
and people are realizing it. And this is why I think more than ever, uh, people like you guys and other other people who are interested in critical voices um, it is a moment in which one should take seriously these alternatives and explore way forward uh, to emancipate ourselves from market dependence. You know, I, I personally, as a concerned citizen, I want to be able to afford goods that just your basics and that's getting harder. So I, I want the, the solutions to be in place to like, to, to combat this inflation, right? Like that's the first thing I'm thinking about. It's all I care about right now is like, we can't afford simple goods. If you said that, um, price caps worked before the, the United States had this in place, like in like around World War II or after, um, how come they're not using that uh, solution to just cap the price? Does it hurt the, the supply chain eventually? Um, well, but, how, how come these aren't yeah, in place? Then, I mean, if, if it works, that's that's uh, that's when one has to really realize that experts heading economic institutions in the United States. Um, are not doing the interest of the people. They're doing the interest of um, a status quo that they benefit from. So um, that's the whole point. Is like it's not like the state finds the correct solution uh, ever. Uh, the point is, what are the political pressures to pressure the state uh, and this uh, the, the state institution into certain solutions? Right. So experts. Um, even if they put the hat on these neutral guides for the good of the whole, clearly are interested in policies that perpetuate the subjugation of the majority into accepting this um, motto of consume less, produce more, and higher exploitation. Now, there are other solutions out there. Why is the state not adopting it? Well, because there's no political pressure coming from anywhere in order to adopt it because it is considered taboo now to use price caps. So the whole point is that either of people actually going in the streets and demanding certain policies or the people who are running our institutions right now have no interest, economic nor political, uh, to take certain measures, right? So what I'm trying to we should think about economic policies, not as this idea of right or wrong, but in the, as this idea of there are these alternatives, what's being put into place is what is in the interests of the many who are ruling us, uh, sorry, of the few who are ruling us, right? So right and wrong is kind of the wrong measure, um, wrong criteria when you talk about economic policy. It's more who benefits and who loses. Now, the fact that they're not doing price caps is because the elites would lose. And also, by the way, those the, the whole corporations that are increasing prices also artificially because, again, increasing prices is a political decision from, from corporations, not a necessity. There's nothing natural of our system, right? There's, there's no mechanics. This Rick Wolf says very well in his, in his explanation of uh, inflation. It's not even if the economic models have us think that it's all a mechanical trick by which there is no agency and you should have to just accept the fact that prices go up. Actually, the decision of increasing prices is decisions of businesses, 
right? If why do prices increase? Because businesses usually maybe have an increase in wages to cope with. And instead of actually taking in the cost, they dump the cost on the consumers, right? So this is why prices increase because once there is some form of increased cost from the part of the business, this business will decide to cope with it by externalizing this increases and by increasing the prices of the commodities. So um, inflation is political and the cures of, to inflation are political. Now, uh, uh, and there's different cures to inflation, but the cure that, that is put into motion at the moment is a cure that the elites prefer because it's the cure that can lower, can lower prices by lowering wages and by crashing the population once more into their exploitative condition. Um, so, exploited, sorry, condition. So, uh, why are price caps wielded at the moment? Again, because there's no political pressure in that regard. Everyone who are people in parliament, people running the state, are doing the interest. It's systemic corruption. You guys should... Uh, should really um, interview Camila Vergara, who wrote this great book called Systemic Corruption. It's not because one or two people are bad. It's not because the representatives, you know, of 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 of, of one or, or or two districts are bad people. It's because there is systemic corruption. The whole way in which the state machine under capitalism works is a way to detach the interest of those who represent us from the represented. So at that point, uh, given that there is systemic corruption, uh, either there's pressures from below, so either people actually go into the streets, either people are able to put pressure on the representatives, or the solution will be that that is in the interest of those who rule us. It's very simple, right? So the whole point here, though, is that austerity gives us the illusion that there is such a thing as right or wrong economic policy, necessary economic policy, right? Because everyone, including people who, you know, could be critical, but, you know, don't have really the intellectual tools to realize how experts are really political agents and they are wielding, they're proposing as necessary theories that are not necessary at all, but they are the theories that benefits those in power. And there's no interest in changing things. Actually, there's interest in taming the population so that they don't rebel. So once we get into that mindset that austerity is a political project, not a technical necessity, then I think we can really be more eye-opened and really imaginative about how we can go about constructing a society that is actually more just for all. And that requires opposition, though, and yes. rethinking the foundation. Yeah, thank you for that. I, so I'm really confused about us being in a capitalistic society because I've, I've always believed that free markets were important. So, for instance, you say there's a movement that you know, people are quitting their jobs and finding other means to earn. And most of the time that's, you know, let's say I, I, I don't want to work anymore because I'm, I have such low wages. Uh, I can't even uh, afford my day to day. So I'm going to take a risk and maybe start my own bakery. Um, so I start my own bakery. Isn't that capitalism that allows me to start my own bakery? 
but that does make me market dependent because I need to sell my bakery in the market and I have to play the, you know, I have to beat someone else's price. I have to make the best muffins or whatever, whatever. Isn't that not capitalism is what's going to allow me to then be free from it? Or what does it really look like when society is uh, not market dependent? I guess what, what would that look like? Yeah, so that's really interesting um, because um, that's another very important belief that has been diffused through austerity, both as a theory and as a policy, or at least also through austerity, is the idea that markets are the only guarantee for freedom, right? So kind of the idea that with market, with thanks to markets, we are all free to express ourselves as these potential entrepreneurs and open our own business and thrive. So the first thing to say is that the freedom of the entrepreneur requires the unfreedom of the exploited worker. And the second thing to say is that also this freedom of the entrepreneur is actually a limited freedom, exactly because of what you just said. It's limited because entrepreneurs themselves depend on the market and thus in order to be successful as um as a, a as a baker you are going to be needing to compete with other bakers who will try to keep prices as low as possible lower than yours so what will you do well you will be pressured to keep the wages of your workers lower so that you can cut costs and cut the cost of the bread. Or you can try to technologically innovate so that you make your la the labor of your workers more productive, and thus even not cutting their wages, you can have them work more in terms of what they produce, right? So they, the, the value, the, the labor is more productive in the sense that they, their value is increasing. And at that point, maybe you can beat the competition by, by lowering the price of your bread. But what you see here is that the small entrepreneur himself is stuck in a um in the warfare of real competition out of market dependence and it's why then the employer is ultimately pressured to increase the rate of exploitation of the workers so that one can beat the real competition. So this is something that is intrinsic in capitalism as a mode of production. And it's due to the fact that, in fact, it's not directly that we just um, produce goods to use them, but we produce goods to sell them in return for other money. So in this, in this dynamic in which we produce to sell, this means that we have to give in to all of the dynamics that are intrinsic to competition. What's the, what would the alternative look like? Well, um, the alternative would, would require the idea that we would somehow escape the domination of this world that is fundamentally dominated by uh, what Marx called the value form, the fact that even the entrepreneur is a slave, right? We are a slave of this world that is made of commodities and ultimately money. So ultimately, for many theorists, socialist theorists, in order to defeat exploitation and the unfreedom, one has to um, overcome market dependence. And this means... Um, finding ways to actually be in charge of 
the distribution of resources amongst the people that don't require the mediation of money. Is that possible? Is that not possible? There's big debates there among socialist theorists. I believe that if one thinks local, um, one doesn't necessarily, again, going back to the example I was telling you, if you think of how many um, shirts um, Puerto Ricans need in this historical moment and you find a way to produce these shirts then uh, and distribute them, uh, the mediation of money is not really required. This, of course, re me requires rethinking fundamentally how we organize production distribution because we all are stuck in what Marx called commodity fetishism, which is the fact that we can't think of a society without money because it's just like outside of the possibilities of our imagination because we are so dependent on it, right? So the point is that we think in relation to what we experience and given that we experience a world in which money is everywhere, imagine a world without money or at least without money playing the role of uh, the dominant uh, the dominant driver of our economy uh, feels very hard. Um, yeah, you're, I, I, I think your points are really thought provoking. It is very interesting. Like I have to like sit and kind of think about this, but I just kind of see it, I guess, from where I'm at right now that, um, you know, I can't I, can't, I don't grow, I won't grow my own chickens, you know, in the condo, or I can't grow bananas myself. So it's, it's. Yeah, yeah definitely. But it doesn't mean author. Yeah, of course. But it doesn't mean autarky. I mean, it doesn't mean that you, one has to then produce everything. I need to go because yeah. the baby is really hungry. But, uh, but yeah, I understand. The, yeah. the point here <laughs> is that uh, it's not about, um, Autarchy in the sense that each, each one of us would have to be producing everything oneself. That doesn't make any sense. The idea is that you can collectively decide how to produce um, as a political community and, of course, uh, plan who produces what and in return for what, right? So uh, that the division of labor wouldn't be missing. It would just be about taking charge of our production of the organization of our production. Yeah, so that's the idea, like putting yeah. back agency instead of yeah. being ruled by money that then we just have to accept as basically the, the, the God that overrules us. And that's exactly the, 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 the game of words that Marx was using to say, you know, we thought we had left the fetishism of these barbaric populations, right? He was making fun of the West Westerners in his time because they thought they were so much more advanced with respect to in Africa that, that were adoring a totem. And he's saying, actually, you guys don't realize that you are way more uh, enslaved by the totem of money uh, than these other populations because money is something we've created, but now completely rules over us in a way that we can't even think about a society that organizes once a basic material condition anywhere else apart from this mediation of money. And this is a, a mental trap that comes out of the physical trap which austerity perpetuates. And I think the point here is to realize that actually um, we could politically regain agency over our material conditions if we were more imaginative, and this doesn't mean that you have to then uh, do everything yourself. Uh, we are in a collective, in a society that could actually like collaborate much more. And I think each of us would be even much more fulfilled as people if we 
found a political belonging uh, instead of being so individualistically divided and only like uh, relationally attached through the monetary mediation. Yeah, I think your your points are are really interesting, and I, uh, I I would like to see what that looks like. And I feel like it it, it would take um, you know a lot of experiments with new different kind of governance uh, to basically learn how to govern ourselves. And that that's and I think people are experimenting with that with like DAX and things, but um, to perfect that uh, to to find something that actually works where you know, it's participatory. That might be a while, but it'd be interesting to see that um, in our lifetime. Definitely. That, like, someone... And I think there's potential right now, especially for younger, especially there's potential right now, especially for younger generations. So unfortunately I need to run because the baby is screaming, he's hungry. Um, but uh, in case you want to dig deeper, apart from the book and all these themes, I'm happy to come back um, and have a chat with you guys. I actually teach I have a class in, in Introduction to Political Economy I teach, I start, it's, it's on these themes. So I could share material with you. There's a great book of Hadass Pierre called A People's Guide to Capitalism. I deeply recommend it. And she might even be able to come on your show, but she, that book is great. I use it also for my students. And it really talks a lot about what we've just discussed. A People's Guide to Capitalism. Check it out. You can find it also online. Uh, I'll write also through email. I I can share it with you, and then we can continue talk talking. Yes. Thank you so much. And that is it for this episode of our podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube. Find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also on Rumble. Thank you all, and we will see you on the next episode.